Hello, and welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. I'm Mario Sakura, and this is the place where my co-hosts, TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia, and I discuss movies through the lens of the Enneagram model of personality. If you like the show, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and join the conversation on our social media pages. For now, grab some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Enneagram and a Movie Podcast. I'm Mario Sakura here with TJ Dahl and TJ Ingracia. Guys, I have a question for you. Are movies with eights just cooler than movies with any of the other Enneagram types? Or is it just because I'm an eight and I think they're cool? They probably have more action and more yelling than non-eight movies. <laughs> this is true. A lot of yelling, a lot of action. Uh-huh. TJ? I think you'll find an abundance of eights in the movies, both as protagonists and antagonists, because eights are so active. So there's a lot to sink your teeth into if you're a screenwriter or director and you want to make a movie that's really going to move as opposed to, say, a four who's more likely to withdraw and sulk when uh, stressful things happen. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 was, I was wondering how narcissistic and egocentric I was being, but when, as I was thinking about this, it's just like, who would want to watch movies with anything but eights in them? Uh, but, but I think your point about the action is part of it, right? Eights are action-oriented people, and movies, for the most part, are the, the pe- movies that people like to go see, you know, in a broad sort of entertaining popcorn, you know, lose-myself-fantasy kind of thing, tend to be action-oriented movies. So, um, but I will reserve the right to say that there are other movies worth watching that do not highlight eights. Uh, and, you know, we'll get to some of those movies. But today we're going to focus on two movies that feature eights very prominently. And uh, those two movies are Aliens, starring Sigourney Weaver, and Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, starring Russell Crowe. Two people who I believe are probably eights in real life. Uh, I, I was recently listening to Sigourney Weaver on um, the Smartless podcast, I think it was. And I don't know that I've ever seen interviews with her. I'm sure I saw, you know, little bits here and there, but I'd never seen much of her outside of the movies. But in this podcast, she just has that self-possession and confidence in herself, that matter-of-fact quality that eights, we often see in eights, right? There's no hesitation. There's no thought, I shouldn't be here. Just very self-possessed person. She was definitely an eight in Avatar, although maybe that's just James Cameron's influence. (laughs) Well, you know, it is interesting. And this is something when, you know, we were messaging each other prior to the movie, uh, really struck me is, you know, and again, Aliens is a James Cameron movie. And I started thinking about the theme of strong women characters in Cameron's movies. And, um, you know, and that's another great example. Certainly there's uh, Linda Hamilton in um, The Terminator 2, at least. She's, she's, strong, she's pretty strong in The Terminator, but really kind of finds herself. She seems like more of a six-ish character in The First Terminator, but clearly an eight-ish character in Terminator 2 and in subsequent uh, portrayals. Even though, again, I wouldn't put her as an eight, Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies show, proves to be a strong character, a woman who finds her strength throughout the film. Uh, are you guys fans of True Lies by any chance? Oh, it's a great movie. I haven't seen it in many, many years, but I love it. I have yet to see it. Oh, it's such a fun movie. I, For me, I think it's one of James Cameron's better movies because it doesn't have 
the seriousness of his other movies, right? It's kind of a lighthearted movie. And by far, Arnold Schwarzenegger's best portrayal, the best, if we want to say acting he's ever done, it's, I think, in that movie. And Tom Arnold is great. Sentence you don't often hear. (laughs) Exactly right. Who'd have thought one would ever hear that? But Tom Arnold was fantastic in that movie, and we also had Bill Paxton. Anyway, I'm diverting and going off in a uh, on a tangent here. So uh, we'll see if that makes TJ's uh, uh, TJ's editing in the uh, post production. Okay. So um, we're going to start with aliens, right? But for tell you what, first let's talk about Enneagram Type Eight. So Enneagram Type Eight, I refer to as striving to feel powerful. Now we, uh, this is our first type edition. Uh, the first three episodes we talked about the instinctual biases. Now we're getting into the Enneagram types, and for me, my way of thinking about the types is that they're what we call people who have a preference toward a particular preferred adaptive strategy. Okay, so somebody who's a type eight is somebody whose preferred strategy, meaning the one they use more than the other eight, is a particular type. And this one is what we call striving to feel powerful. Okay, so it's somebody who's strong-willed and assertive. They just want to feel powerful. Now, they don't get up in the morning thinking, okay, I got to feel powerful today. It's just kind of an organizing principle, an unspoken or even unthought organizing principle that guides how they interact with the world. Now, this will shape how they think about the world, right? If I want to feel powerful, I'll think about power. Okay, I'll think about disparities in power. I'll think about how to feel powerful, how to maintain power, how to accumulate power. And then I will act in ways that are consistent with that way of thinking about the world. Okay, so we see eights as people who are strong-willed and assertive and engaged in the world and action-oriented, decisive and because of this, they often end up in leadership positions. And in these two movies we're going to watch, we have one who has leadership by position. Okay, the Russell Crowe character. He's the ship's captain. So whether he's a strong person or not, he's the leader okay, uh, by, you know, by title. Whereas Ripley is kind of along for the ride, but assumes leadership primarily because of her decisiveness. And this is one of the reasons why eights are, you know, tend to migrate towards leadership roles because they don't deal well with ambiguity or uncertainty. They make decisions and they act and people are left to either just follow or be left behind. Now, the other thing we see is these two connecting points, right? The strategies at points two and points five and all the Enneagram types, while they're being um, driven by this preferred strategy, we also have to understand the tension at the two connecting points. And for the eight, point two is what we call striving to feel connected, and point five is striving to feel detached. So if we want to understand eights, we need to understand how they are wrestling with this tension between connecting to people and detaching from them so I can feel strong. Right? And I'll, I will not connect with people if that inhibits my ability to feel powerful, or I will connect with people if that enhances my ability to feel powerful. When it comes to detachment, usually detachment, you know, setting my emotions aside is a good way to feel more powerful. Okay? So um, I'll be curious as we get to talking about the movies how you guys see that dynamic at play. Okay? 
The other thing I want to say about eights is that the classic vice of the eight is lust. Okay. Now, lust is not only or not always a sexual thing, right? It's it's you know not just a sexual desire. It is a single-minded desire for a particular thing, right? I want that thing. And it's hard for me to think about other things until I get that thing. Again, we see this in both of those movies. I think this single-mindedness of both of these characters. The um, virtue, on the other hand, is innocence, which is the ability to kind of put down their armor in a way and allow themselves to experience what's happening around them, allowing themselves to be vulnerable, allowing themselves to be touched by circumstances and other people. And then finally, we have the, uh, the fixation, which traditionally is vengeance for the eight. It's interesting, at the last IEA conference uh, in, uh, oh, where the heck was it, Oakland, I think, um, a few years ago, the last in-person one before COVID hit, they were showing in one of the uh, plenary sessions a video by Claudio Naranjo talking about the eight. And he was saying how he didn't, he no longer thought that the fixation of the eight was vengeance. And I forget what he said it was because all I could think was, boy, oh boy, you got that one wrong, right? Because I can tell you as an eight, vengeance is a driving state of mind for the eight. Now, vengeance doesn't have to be a big deal, right? It's not like a, a death vendetta or something. You know, I got to kill you and all your family because you, you know, looked at me the wrong way. It's needing to get back on top in some way. Okay. So even something fairly slight for the eight, it's how do I get back on top? And that is a form of vengeance, right? I have to get you back so that I am not in an inferior position. And again, that is something that really drives what goes on in the psyche of the eight. Okay. So we're going to talk about the movie Aliens first. TJ Daw, why don't you tell us about Aliens? Aliens is the sequel to the movie Alien. So Aliens came out in 1986. The first movie came out in 1979. Unlike the first movie, this was written and directed by James Cameron. Sigourney Weaver reprises a role as Ripley. She begins the movie in cryogenic sleep, which we find out later she's been in for 57 years. And the planet where the alien is from in the first movie, it turned out, has now got a human settlement on it, terraforming the planet. So Ripley agrees to go back with a squad of Marines to wipe out the aliens after the company that set up that terraforming station lost contact with the colonists. The Marines are quite cocky. They think this is going to be easy, a bug hunt as they describe it, and the aliens decimate them. So Ripley is one of the few survivors of the first alien attack. She finds the sole survivor on the planet, which is Newt, an 11-year-old girl. As they attempt to escape the planet, Newt falls down a shaft. Ripley goes back to get her and in doing so has to confront the alien's queen, a huge egg-laying monster, much bigger than the regular aliens who are already deadly enough. She rescues Newt, the station blows up, and right when they think the coast is clear, she ends up having a final confrontation with the alien queen on board the spaceship that they have escaped onto. Ripley barely overcomes the queen and sends her into the vacuum of space and the movie ends with her and Newt and two other surviving members of the troop going into cryogenic sleep and pointing their ship on the way back to Earth. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. 
but to wipe them out. That's the plan. There's nothing back here. Look, I'm telling you, there's something moving and it ain't us. Get them out of there! They cut the power. How could they cut the power, man? They're animals. There's movement all over the place. Five meters, man. Four. Aliens. This time, it's war. This movie was out in 1986. And um, again, as with many of the movies we've talked about, I've had to kind of slap myself when I realize how old uh, some of these movies are. So this one's almost 40 years old. And again, it's another movie that I did see in the movie theater and really enjoyed. I'm guessing that neither of you saw it in the theater. Is that fair? No, it, (laughs) it was rated R. But I did see it at a Halloween sleepover when I was 11 or 12 years old. Oh, my. And uh-huh. loved it. Uh-huh. I was terrified by it and loved it and became one of my favorite movies. And I watched it again and again and again in my teens. TJ and Grassi, when's the first time you encountered Aliens? Uh, well, it came out when I was about nine months old. So <laughs> I don't think I saw it in theaters. <laughs> Not that I'd remember. Uh-huh. I do remember seeing it on cable, I want to say, when I was a kid. It was funny. Re- I haven't haven't seen it since you know whatever sometime in the early '90s or something. And rewatching it, I could remember like little flashes of oh yeah, I remember the aliens crawling through the shaft, and I remember her in the loader, and just like little. But that's the only things that I had ever remembered of it. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask this: Did you guys enjoy the movie? Absolutely. Yeah, it was great. I do believe that James Cameron is one of the greatest filmmakers ever for things vehicles, creatures, things like that. And he's also one of the worst directors for people and emotions and words. And that's consistent in this. It's not as bad as in Avatar or in Titanic, but it's still just like, yeah, this guy's just not that great with people and words and feelings. (laughs) You know, it's interesting. When I saw Avatar in the theater, I remember just being completely blown away and turning to my wife and saying, you know, our kids will never watch movies the same way that we did. And then never had any interest in going back and watching it again. It's the only time I've ever seen Avatar. To your point, TJ, it's just not interesting enough at a human level. If you watch it with this in mind, if you just listen to the dialogue, it's cringeworthy. It's like it was done by a junior high student. And yet I maintain like the technical feat of what that man can do is perhaps unsurpassed. And one of the things that's unbelievable about aliens is that he filmed this movie with a grand total of six aliens. Just through cleverness with the camera and editing, it made it look like there were hordes of them. There were never actually that many as well as the sets, the vehicles, the models, the special effects. And he knows all of that shit. He's intimately involved in every single aspect of production. Like he really knows what he's doing physically. And at the same time, I I think we can, he understands some things about human nature at a very fundamental level, right? So uh, number one, he understands fear, okay? And how to play to people's fears and aspirations. And also, as I said, I was impressed by his uh, ability to create strong female characters. And it was interesting to me as I started researching this movie to find that 
even that for him was not necessarily a moral or ethical or philosophical statement. It was just movies with strong female characters will sell more tickets because half the people that go to see movies are women. So, you know, make strong women that appeals to them. Okay. And certainly Ripley was that. Uh, what else about um, Aliens, uh, TJ, should we know? The overarching theme of this movie quite blatantly is motherhood. Uh, there's a scene that was deleted, which is in the special edition, if anybody can find it, where we discover early in the movie that Ripley's daughter had died during the 57 years that she was in cryogenic sleep. And there's even a picture of her, which is Sigourney Weaver's actual mother. So she's, as a character, Ripley is a mother who has lost a daughter. And when, the, when she finds Newt on this new planet, part of the reason it's implied anyway that she becomes so attached to her is there's a mother-daughter relationship with her, even though they're not biologically related. And the ultimate confrontation is with the alien queen, who is a mother. And the final confrontation is mother versus mother. Are your children going to survive or are my children going to survive? And being a man and being a childless man, I can only go on what I have heard from different women, including my own mother, who is not an eight, is that more than one woman I've listened to has said that they would fight lions for their children. Whether a woman is an eight or not, that is a situation where a, a desire to feel powerful, where like this almost superhuman strength can come up and says, you will not cross this line which is very eightish, and I will go into the depths of hell to save my children, which is literally what happens in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Ripley is traumatized by her encounter with the alien in the first movie. She knows exactly how dangerous it is to go into the bowels of this space station to try and rescue Newt at the end. She also knows she's going to be confronting something beyond what she's seen before, because there's another deleted scene in which the, you know, the survivors talk about how someone, something must be laying these eggs, something we haven't seen before. And it's posited that it's similar to the queen mm. in an ant colony or in a beehive. So that sets up what it is, which is exactly that, this bigger, more powerful alien. And she goes in without hesitation. Like, it's just unthinkable that I will not save this, this daughter figure. It's, it's interesting to me that they did that scene and then deleted it. Because it wasn't needed, right? I mean, you could kind of figure that out once you saw it. And the discovery of that was, you know, part of the interest of the movie. Um, so it's nice that they didn't feel the need to tell you everything in that way. So good choice to cut that scene out. Uh, let's see. So t tell me, uh, TJ, what are a couple of scenes that seem particularly eight-ish for you about this movie? Yeah, well, just to start with the more stereotypical presentation of eights, there's the scene when all of the Marines are you know, brought out of cryogenic sleep. So they're nearing the planet. They've been in slumber for weeks. You know, It's not exactly specified how long. And they wake up, and it's a squad of Marines. Now, Marine culture, military culture in general, is pretty eight-ish. And that's absolutely played up in this. Not every one of the Marines is an eight, but there's an overall eight-ish culture to them. Uh, the drill sergeant... Epone immediately has a cigar in his mouth as soon as he's out of his chamber, as if he fell asleep with the cigar in one <laughs> hand and a lighter in the other. And he's immediately just waxing enthusiastic about how much he loves being a Marine. Every meal's a banquet, every paycheck's a fortune. Another day in uh, the Marines is like a day on the farm. And then Vasquez, who's one of the Marines, a woman, immediately starts doing chin-ups on a series of pipes. And she's incredibly cut. She's doing them for real. Like that's something I read, but it also just doesn't look like you could fake that if you wanted to. She's doing chin-ups. She's in incredible shape. 
she operates a smart gun, which is so heavy. And I read that the actual prop was 70 to 90 pounds that you have to hold the front from above. It's called a smart gun. Her fellow smart gun operator is Drake. He's doing chin-ups too. So they just love feeling powerful, even when they've just come out of a coma, basically. And then Hudson, you know, quippingly says to Vasquez, hey, Vasquez, have you ever been mistaken for a man? And without breaking the rhythm of her chin-ups at all, she says, no. <laughs> have you? Yes. And see, l- l- let me just say, because right, this is great, but th- that right there is an example of vengeance that I'm talking about, right? You think you got me, I will get you back and I'll get you better, right? So that's that's a, a, a less malevolent version of vengeance there. Well, just to continue on Vasquez for a second, uh, she's one of the small number of Marines that survives the first attack. And then uh, her fellow smart gun operator, Drake, dies in that attack. And she has to be restrained from trying to get him. She's furious that her friend. So there's that loyalty that you see in it's a lot of like ride or die. We are with each other till the end. In the final attack, as they're escaping to the ship, because the space station is about to explode with a 40 megaton blast. Uh, she's taking the rear guard as they're scampering through the air ducts and the aliens are chasing them and she's firing her pulse rifle. She runs out of bullets, throws down her rifle. Now she's firing a pistol at them. And one of the aliens scampers up and tries to grapple with her and she kicks it against the wall and shooting it like point blank. So she's just got that like, I will kick your ass even with my dying breath. And then she gets the alien blood squirted all over her, which burns her and she's immobilized. And eventually Gorman, the, um, the ranking officer comes up, kind of clutches her and holds a bunch of grenades as they arm them. And there's this great moment where they clutch hands holding these grenades. And she says to him, you always were an asshole. (laughs) But it's this great final moment for an eight of like, I'm going to die and I'm going to take as many of you with me as I can. It was also a great example of an eight-ish term of endearment that is not typically seen as a term of endearment that she was saying to him, right? You always were an asshole. She was saying that in almost a loving way, right? No respect. You know, she was telling him, you know, ah, you're okay after all, but not coming out and being quite so, you know, mawkish uh, you know, from an eight's perspective, right? How does an eight say I love you? Yeah. It's like, ah, you're not such an asshole. So, uh, you know, is what it comes down to. All right. Um, TJ and Gracia, what else uh, was eight-ish about this movie? There were lots of little moments with Ripley, I thought, that seemed very eight-ish in the scene when she's having the meeting with the Wayland executives after she comes out of cryosleep, and she's trying to tell them about her experience, and basically they don't believe her. And so one of the first things she says is, did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? And then as they're, as the they're walking out of the meeting, she's talking to the main guy and he's trying to leave. And at one point she phys- she puts her arm out and like against the wall in front of him. So he physically can't leave until she finishes the conversation with him. Yeah, great. It's, it's hard with anything with Ripley for me. It was hard to find anything that wasn't a reflection of her eightness, right? I mean, from um, now, there's obviously a lot of fear and terror in this movie. In fact, the whole movie you know, very similar to the Terminator in this way, and that it's just a thrill ride from beginning to end, you know? I mean, it's just, you're on the edge of your seat and thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to get through this? But from the very beginning when, you know, she has that nightmare, and then when they come in and they're telling her, it might even be in the nightmare, where they're telling her how long she's been in cryo sleep, 
And her lack of patience, as Paul, I think it's Paul Reiser, is kind of beating around the bush. And she just says, how long? Right. Just, you know, she keeps asking how long and then just immediately, you know, stop beating around the bush. Tell me what I want to know. Right. And we see this throughout. There's also the tenderness to her, particularly with Newt. Right. There are a few tender moments maybe with uh, Hicks, the um, it was Hicks. I keep messing up Hicks and Hudson like the uh, lieutenant did. Um, but uh, Michael yeah. Bean, was he? He, yeah. he was Hicks. Yeah. Interestingly. In two James Cameron movies, he had to be rescued by strong women. Uh, um, you know, this kind of very handsome, you know, uh, athletic hero type being rescued by the strong woman. But um, so we see this eightish tenderness that comes out uh, also. And again, just aggressiveness and decisiveness all the way through. So straight through, uh, for me, a uh, an unerring Eight-ish portrayal. Well, I'd say that her relationship with Newt really does show the combination of power and love and how when an eight loves someone, that love is infused with power. But it doesn't mean that they're intense. They're yelling all the time. Like some of the, her first encounters with Newt, she's very quiet. She's very tender. She meets her exactly where she is, but she's also very direct. She refuses to lie to her about the, how dire their situation is. And then, like I was saying before, she goes into the bowels of hell to confront the queen in order to save Newt. It's just unthinkable that she wouldn't. Yeah, she duct tapes a gun with a flamethrower and then goes into the bowels. <laughs> and in the previous scene, Hicks was showing her how to operate the gun. And she said, what's this? And he said, oh, that's the grenade launcher. Don't worry about that. And she says, no, show me everything. I can handle myself. Yeah. And he kind of laughs, laughs and says, yeah, I noticed. <laughs> Good. We talked, uh, well, actually didn't talk. We were exchanging some messages prior um, you know, over the past week or so as we were discussing this movie about the instinctual bias or the subtype of Ripley. And the first inclination is, well, it's, you know, a preserving type because this movie was about, you know, don't get turned into a, you know, a cocoon for, you know, an alien, right? Um, and it was all about survival and so forth. But as I started watching the movie and looking at, I guess, the... Uh, discretionary activities. And this is what I always look at when I'm looking at subtypes, right? What does somebody do when they don't have to do something specific? Okay. Because everybody is preserving when there's an alien chasing you. Okay. But what happens in those moments of, you know, when the alien's not necessarily chasing them with these down moments. And I think that Ripley was more of a navigating subtype of the eight. And a couple of reasons for that. Uh, there wasn't any discretionary discussion of preserving things, but she was also really good at reading people and getting a sense of what they needed, right? There were these moments when she would be able to say things to people, like to Hudson, for example, the great Bill Paxton, who was you know, wonderful in this role, um, probably a six-ish character who was, you know, terrified throughout. And you know, she could calm him down and she could she could modulate really well, right? It wasn't just one. If you think of the transmitting eight, that's more of a Patton-esque character, right? Of just all command all the time. But she was kind of playing the group like an instrument, which is more indicative of the navigating eight. She's very aware of the chain of command. So, and she's also aware of the fact that Gorman, the ranking officer, is in over his head. 
so that when he seems to quiet down and cease to function during that first alien attack, she just takes over. She tries to get through to him. She tries to do it the right way. It's not working. She grabs the headset. She yells commands. She gets into the driver's seat of the vehicle. She stomps on the gas. Yeah. And then later on, she uses Newt's knowledge of the air ducts to facilitate their escape. She's very aware of like, I've got a team yes. here. Each person has a different expertise. So part of Hudson's expertise is technical knowledge. So when he's having his meltdown, she gives him a technical task that he can do, which calms him down. Newt has survived for 17 days on her own and can scamper through the air ducts. She knows exactly where to go. So let's use that. There's no loss of status in the fact that I'm asking a little girl where to go. She knows where to go. Yeah, she's very strategic that way, right? Um, very, you know, open-minded, very sort of able to step back and think of the big picture. Um, also, what you said there, uh, TJ, about authority, hierarchies. People always ask me, can an eight not be the boss in an organization? And they can be not the boss as long as the boss is good, right? But the moment they start to smell weakness in the boss, they start to put them, get themselves ready to take over, much like Ripley had to do. Right? She knew. You could kind of get the sense that she was keeping an eye on the lieutenant. And then the moment that he faltered, she just jumped in, right, because she was ready. But had he been capable and competent, she probably would have followed him, you know, uh, uh, as was appropriate. So uh, I think we've covered most of the things we want to talk about with aliens. Uh, any final thoughts or anything we missed uh, regarding aliens? One last thing about vengeance is a phrase that a female eight friend of mine used to describe why she quit smoking is that she didn't want to be anything's bitch. <laughs> and that's something that kind of ties into vengeance. You know, that's just a much more eightish way of phrasing eightish vengeance. The thing that convinces Ripley to go back to this planet is that she keeps waking up with nightmares. She's got PTSD. And so even though she escaped the alien from the first movie, she didn't at the same time. And she goes back on the condition that they are there to exterminate it. That's it. And then in her final confrontation with the alien queen, as they're leaving, when she doesn't need to, even though she knows that this whole base is about to blow up like a nuclear bomb, she turns around and flamethrowers all of the eggs with a scorched earth policy of like, I don't need to do this but I'm going to do this because fuck you. Yeah. I mean, and to carry that theme forward when they have the final showdown in the hangar between Ripley and the queen and the queen is going after Newt and Ripley says, get away from her, you bitch. That's one of the great all time movie lines. I think just the way she delivers it in the scene. Uh, and it's a very eight ish line. She could have just said, get away from her. First of all, the alien doesn't speak English anyway. So, of course, the aide is going to tack on the insult at the end for good measure. That's a good point. Yeah. It's, but, you know, it never stops us from speaking English to, you know, people or aliens or animals, I guess. Uh, so Great. Yeah. So, I, again, really, really good portrayal. I, I Look, I've seen Aliens so many times over the years, um, you know, from the time it came out until, you know, I even prior to prepping for this, it was on TV and I watched, you know, parts of it, uh, a, a lot of it. A great double feature. Alien and Aliens are just really, really good movies, right? Alien was a great, great movie. Ridley Scott directed that. 
and um, Aliens, um, you know, two of the two of the top directors working. So uh, really encourage you to watch those movies if you haven't seen them. And one of the few times that a sequel is as good or better than the uh, first one. One thing to mention right before we leave it too is that it's not the easiest thing in the world to find a movie with a female eight in it, period, much less in the lead role. And in movies and in society in general, there's just less acceptance for women being eights, even though in actual experience, women are just as likely to be an eight as a man. It's just those qualities are frowned upon. So it's great when we do see it, and it's great when it's well presented, like in this movie. And I hope that there are more. If you want to find out more about my work with the Enneagram and organizations of all kinds, or our certification programs, visit me at mariosecura.com or follow me on social media. Hi, I'm TJ Daw, and I do one-on-one consulting on creative projects of all kinds, as well as Enneagram coaching. I teach an online course on how to create your own one-person show, and I speak at events and perform shows of my own. For more information, go to my website, www.tjdawe.ca. This is TJ Ingracia. To check out my YouTube series, Typecast, which explores the Enneagram through film and television, go to youtube.com typecast. And... If you're interested in my professional video production services, check out tjangracia.com. Okay, so movie number two is one of my all-time favorite flicks. As as you listeners know, I'm a big, big Peter Weir, Weir fan, and uh, this is a Peter Weir movie. And um, it's Master and Commander, The Far Side what was it? The f- far side of the world. Far side of the world. Thank you. And actually, I found out that it was uh, a condensation or inspired by three of the fifteen or eighteen books uh, that this uh, movie is based on. I just love this movie. Uh, T.J. Ingrassi, you're going to tell us about this movie, so go ahead. Master and Commander is a 2003 epic historical drama directed by Peter Weir and starring Russell Crowe as Captain Jack Aubrey, the commander of the HMS Surprise, a British warship during the Napoleonic Wars. The film is based on two of the novels of the Aubrey Maturin series by Patrick O'Brien that you referenced. I think there's 20 books in that series, actually. The film follows Lucky Jack and his crew as they set sail on a dangerous mission to intercept and capture a powerful French warship, the Acheron, which is wreaking havoc on British shipping. The Acheron is faster, more heavily armed, and better equipped than the Surprise, but Captain Aubrey is determined to take it down. As the two ships engage in a cat-and-mouse game across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, the crew of the Surprise faces numerous challenges and dangers, including storms, mutiny, and attacks by the Acheron. Meanwhile, Captain Aubrey must balance his duty to his country with his concern for the safety and well-being of the crew, along with the opinions and needs of his best friend, the ship surgeon Stephen Maturin. Throughout the film, Captain Aubrey's leadership and strategic skills are tested as he tries to outmaneuver and outsmart the French captain, who proves to be a formidable opponent. The film is also notable for its attention to historical accuracy and its depiction of life aboard a British warship during the Napoleonic era. All right, lads. Touch wood, Mr. Blakeney. Turn three times. May the Lord of Saints preserve just a broken house you're in very good hands seven weeks sailing and he happened on our exact position well then perhaps he was looking for us damn he was good an act of war will cripple them 
With basic repairs, we can get home as we are. We're not going home. The power of nature will threaten them. Our enemy has more than twice our guns, more than twice our numbers, and we are supposed to stop them. Torn between fulfilling his duty. Captain's not called Lucky Jack for no reason. Phantom or no, Lucky Jack will have And the lives of the men he commands. Steady! He must face the invincible. He fights like you, Jack. A hunter becomes the hunted. Well then, there's not a moment to lose. Had you guys seen this movie prior to preparing for this podcast? I had not. I had. I saw it when it was in the theaters. Loved it. Kind of forgot about it. And then didn't think much about it until I saw it again. And then loved it again. TJ and Gracia, what was your reaction to the movie upon seeing it? Well, I thought it was great. I had just watched Gladiator. And so mm-hmm. I was in sort of a Russell Crowe, early 2000s kind of mood. Peak, and peak s- Russell Crowe. Yeah. Yeah. He was great in both. Uh, and I love historical sort of set piece kind of films. And so uh, that era is fascinating to me. And uh, I just, yeah, I loved it. Great. Um, this was kind of the height of the the Russell Crowe era. I was looking at some of his filmography. Uh, another one of my favorite movies is L.A. Confidential, which he was uh, played a secondary character in 1997. Bud White, another eight. Crowe is one of those actors who has played Things other than what I think his Enneagram type is, I do think he's an eight. In A Beautiful Mind, he played a pretty five-ish character. I think his character in The Insider with Al Pacino could go either way. I could see that being a preserving eight. I've seen an argument for a five, but upon rewatching it, it felt eight-ish to me. Um, let's see. Uh, 310 to Yuma plays an eight, a great eight character. Have you guys seen 310 to Yuma? Uh, another, for me, a really rewatchable movie. I like that movie a lot, and I've seen it a bunch of times. And then it kind of goes downhill for Russell Crowe, I think. And this might have been around when the phone incident happened, uh, where in the Mercer Hotel in Soho, he threw a phone at a concierge or a front desk person who wouldn't help him place a phone call. Kind of, you know, really damaged Russell Crowe's career uh, for for me. Unfortunately, I was always a big, big fan. Uh, tell me, guys, are Russell Crowe fans? Oh yeah, I think he's wonderful. He played Roger Ailes in a TV miniseries a few years oh, ago, right. and thought he was wonderful <laughs> in that. And then he did a surprisingly comedic turn as Zeus in the most recent Thor movie, <laughs> Love and Thunder, where he kind of makes Zeus a bit of a buffoon and doesn't seem to be ashamed to do so. Right. So I love an actor who doesn't take himself too seriously, especially when his resume includes these great, massively heroic leading man roles. He he also is kind of uh, Brando-esque in the sense that he doesn't really seem to care that he got fat, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, he was, you know, a, a pretty, uh, you know, muscular guy, um, you know, early in his career, certainly during the Gladiator era and uh, some of the other movies. And you know, clearly has let himself go and just doesn't seem to care, right? I mean, I don't think that he probably, as playing Zeus, needed the same prosthetics that uh, uh, that Thor did, you know, to you know to look like the <laughs> melting ice cream or whatever it was he was referred to. So, um, yeah, I'm a big Russell Crowe fan, and I think this was probably one of his better roles. Um, T.J. and Gracia, t- tell us a couple of scenes that you thought were particularly eight-ish in this film. Sure. So after the first attack by the Acheron, they've managed to uh, escape, slip into the fog, sort of by the skin of their teeth. 
and Jack is walking around sort of assessing the damage. And at one point, uh, his best friend, Stephen, who's the ship's surgeon, notices that he's got a cut over his eye. And to that, you know, seems like a very age thing to that point. He didn't even notice that he was injured and bleeding. But uh, Stephen sits him down. And while he's examining him, he's talking about thinking back on how the attack went. And he says, damn, he was good. Came out of nowhere. He hit us with a full broadside, cut across our tail and took out our rudder. Damn fine gunnery. And it's this very eight-ish theme that I have seen in a lot of movies and eights that I have known of uh, what I call respect for a worthy adversary. They want the challenge. And obviously he wants to win and he's trying to destroy this ship, but it's not a... um, well, vengeful is not maybe not the right word, but it's it's a it's it's a it's a mutual. There's a mutual respect on both sides, and I think we can see this in heat between Vincent Hanna and Neil Macaulay. It's like there's this deep, you can almost call it affection for each other, for you know this respect for what they can do, which is also contrasted by some films with eights where there is open disrespect for an unworthy adversary. So I was thinking about Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood and how he just torments Eli Sunday through the film because he has no respect for him. He views him as this sniveling, weaselly kind of guy. Earlier, TJ, you mentioned Quint and Jaws. The relationship between Quint and Hooper, how he's just tormenting him through the whole thing. Colonel Jessup and Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men, uh, Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, uh, and the adversarial relationship they have there. So... If you're on the eight's good side and you can hold your own, then you can stand in the arena with them. Yeah, I'll I'll add a couple of things. Uh, One thing I forgot to mention uh, when I was doing the overview of the eight are the core qualities, right? Uh, So the core qualities, these deeply rooted um, kind of aspects of human nature that become stunted early in life. At point eight, it's vitality, right? So this this feeling of being alive becomes stunted. Now, these things happen in all of us, but it's the sort of the core issue of the eight, right? This need to recapture feeling alive. And we see this, and and Russell Crowe gives some of the best examples of this. There's that scene in the beginning of Gladiator when they're in battle with the Germans, right? And, you know, and you you just, it's this all out horrific battle where limbs are being cut off and heads are being cut off and all these sort of things. And at one point, Russell Crowe's Maximus backs into one of his own soldiers and he turns around and he's about to stab him with the sword and realizes it's his own guy. And then he just smiles at him, right? So in the midst of this battle, you can just see him having fun. Right. And not so much having fun, but feeling alive. And there are moments of this as well here, right, where you just see at these moments where everybody else is kind of freaking out. Aubrey gets this little grin on his face, you know, because I feel alive during this. Right. So that vitality is the is the is the main core quality. Uh, the, The other two at the connecting points are compassion right? Real compassion for other people. And we've talked about that with Ripley and we see it here as well, right? We see these flashes of compassion and intuition. Okay. So one of the, um, you know, challenges that AIDS have is being impulsive rather than following real intuition. And the mature eight starts to gain intuition through skill development. And we see that coming out here as well. So I just wanted to throw that in there because uh, I forgot to mention it before. Well, just to add to that exact point, they establish after that first attack that the French ship is twice their size, has twice the number of men, twice the number of guns, 
and the hull is twice as thick, so impervious to their blasts. And all of that seems to excite Jack. That is not a reason to retreat. That's a reason to beat them because that's a victory that's really going to feel good. Right. He also points out that he says, but they're, they're vulnerable in the rear, like all of us, right? So he knows their weak spot, and that's what he's going to go after. And that's go very ahead. much an eight thing. It's yes. like, okay, you're very, you're very strong, but I see the weakness right there. Boom, that's where I'm going. As well as the fact that he's very strategic. You know, you've said in the past that a different type will stab you in the back, whereas an eight will stab you in the chest. But in this case, he knows he's outgunned. He knows he's up against a more powerful adversary. So let's get strategic. Let's use subterfuge. Let's let's disguise ourselves. Let's come up with a bunch of clever tricks. And then now I've got the advantage and now I'm coming for you. Yeah. And you've said that eights need a dragon to slay. Yes. Like that's just a fundamental need for an eight. So here is a worthy dragon. A note that I wrote as I was as I was watching this movie is Captain Jack is enjoying the shit out of this. <laughs> and the way the movie ends is after they have theoretically beaten the French ship. After it's gone, he's given one of his officers command of that ship, sent it to Chile, and then they're going off to the Galapagos. Then they realize that, oh, no, wait a minute, that ship's doctor wasn't the ship's doctor. That was the French captain in disguise. Let's go get him. So again, there's this glint in his eye of like, what could be better? The yes. chase continues. And the happy music playing right at the end, yeah. the, you know, because I've got another dragon to go after, right? They're absolutely right. Absolutely what right. a good adversary. Yes. Oh, this is going to feel even that much better when I get him next time. Yeah. So there are a couple of things for me, uh, scenes. And again, a, uh, I, I would say this is a pure eight portrayal, uh, by which I mean there were no, this was not somebody who's not an eight playing an eight. And so the non-eightness slipped out here and there, right? Uh, there were no inconsistencies of, oh, an eight would never do that. It was, it was dead on in its portrayal. Uh, and so you can point to almost everything, but there, the, the scene that always jumps out to me is the flogging scene, right? And the scene after that with, I think it's after that or before, I don't remember now, but with uh, Mr. Hollum, um, who, so the idea is, is that one of the, they started, uh, Mr. Hollum is one of the junior officers who's in over his head, uh, who becomes a target of disdain of the crew, and in fact, a target of suspicion of bad luck uh, from the crew. One of the crew members bumps into him, um, and Mr. Hollum doesn't do anything about it. Russell Aubrey immediately snaps into action, and even though he doesn't want to do it, even though he knows that the guy who bumped into the officer is a good guy, basically, he knows he has to flog him. Right. And he knows he has to follow the rules of maintaining order on a ship, because if you don't do this, you'll start to get anarchy. So doing difficult things because they were the right thing to do is one of the themes here. You also see that in the scene where the guy falls overboard and the, the top of the mast is act, acting as a sea anchor. So one of their crew members is overboard during this storm. And um, they're, they're trying to rescue him, but then they realize if they don't cut loose this, um, this piece of the mast, then the whole ship's going to sink. But if they do cut it loose, they'll never be able to save this other seaman. So he has to make this choice of, I send one man to his death knowingly in order to probably save the rest of the crew. Real strong eight-ish moment of... 
being able to, again, reach into that 0.5 detachment, okay, and set my emotions aside and do what I know needs to be done, no matter how tough it is. So for me, that's one of the great scenes uh, that portrays this aid. The same when he's watching this crewman being flogged. Um, when he's just standing there stone-faced and you know he's not a cruel guy you know he's a nice guy with a heart and that sort of thing you see the tenderness when he's given the book about uh, Admiral Nelson to the the kid who lost his arm so you see that side of him as well but that strength is there is a really good portrayal of what's happening at the core of the issues around the ape and he's one of the ones who's chopping the rope Yes. Like he doesn't just command junior officers to do that. Yes. He's making it happen. And he does look at the soldier who, or the sailor who's in the ocean being condemned to his death. He doesn't weep, but he doesn't turn his head away. Yes. It was interesting to me. Again, I think we have a navigating eight character. I think this one's a bit clearer. Uh, I mean, hell, they were navigating a ship around the world, you know? So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he teaches them how to use sextants. <laughs> exactly right. What else could he be, right? Uh, uh, but, uh, you, you know, again, for all the reasons we talked about with Ripley, this strategic sense, this reading of the people and so forth, the transmitting eight tends to be a bit more blatantly egocentric. The navigating eight is more subtly egocentric, right? Um, it's, it's a bit more nuanced, but it's still there. And this is one of the issues of the movie is he pursuing the Acheron out of duty or out of ego, right? And this is one of the things that the ship's doctor confronts him on at one point, that it smacks of pride, and um, Aubrey doesn't take that very well in that scene. So I think it's, it's you know, again, one of the distinctions between these two subtypes is the, the subtlety of the egocentrism, right, or the nuance of it, uh, how blatant it is. Um, I think the navigating aids hide it a little bit better. But, it, you know, there is this orientation toward duty and the group that's a bit stronger than we see in the transmitting aid. Um, although transmitting aids are kind of like the parent of the group, uh, you know, very often. But I'm the parent, right? Um, whereas the navigating aid is more, I'm doing this for the group, but there's this subtle, you know, but I'm doing it for this group because this group helps me get my needs <laughs> and my desires. You know, I always kind of joke, uh, I'm happy to help other people as long as you're going my way. Right. So a little bit of nuance about the eight. Go ahead. And yet again, it will not do to be anyone's bitch. This is, say, say more about that, TJ. What do you mean by that? Well, because the French captain got the best of them. Yes. So, like, I'm not retreating. I'm not going back to England to ask for a new ship. Yes. And that's another thing is when they assess the damage, the ship is incredibly damaged. And that's one of the things that's just remarkable as a piece of filmmaking. How, like, when the cannonballs hit the ship, wood splinters, masts fall, you know, limbs are torn asunder. You see just how fragile and breakable everything is. And there's a real visceral realness to it. And I'm reminded of this line that I read in a book about the making of The Wild Bunch, which is a Western by Sam Peckinpah, a great movie about eights made by an eight. Before that movie was made, Peckinpah went to see a movie called Lilies of the Field with his friend Lee Marvin, another great eight actor. As they left the theater, Marvin summed up the movie in one line in a very eightish way. He said, yet another movie where nobody takes a shit. 
<laughs> and that's in the era of Hollywood when almost everything was filmed on a soundstage and things were often genteel. And as an eight, he just had no time for that. In that scene, when they're assessing the damage to the ship, they show the toilet out of the captain's cabin, which also is damaged. But it's like, not only is this a movie where people take a shit, here's where they do it. Here's what it looks like. And throughout this movie, no punches are pulled in showing the base level of life. Like you can see that their food, even on the captain's table, has weevils crawling on it. And that's not unusual. There's an amputation scene with the patient awake and barely anesthetized. They operate on a guy's skull and everybody's watching. You see seasickness and vomiting. You see how gross the food is that's, you know, doled out to the sailors. They, they talk about how they s stitch the canvas through a corpse's nostril just to make sure that they're really dead. There's also a lot of just showing how things work. There's a lot of sailors climbing nets. There's people hammering. There's people repairing the ship. There's one guy who's bailing out the ship during the battle. There's a huge number of men. Every one of them is necessary and busy. There, it shows them sharpening swords and hammering cannonballs into shape and burning the wood sto uh, in the stoves. It's like this is a visceral, real movie, which really seems to me to fit into the realness that is a big part of Type 8. Yeah, I, I love that. That's a, that's a great observation. It was interesting to me in doing research in this movie. They wanted... So this is a movie where other than the two main characters, I had never seen any of the actors before, right? Um, other than Paul Bettany and Russell Crowe. I don't know who any of the other people were. Okay, everybody in... Almost everybody in Aliens, oh yeah, that's Paul Reiser, or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I saw that they were looking for actors and particularly the extras who looked like they could be alive in 1805 when this movie was made and so they got most of the extras from poland um because they just felt that poles look more 1805 ish than uh, than <laughs> other folks and uh, you know being someone of polish descent uh, you know I, okay that made me start to think you know hmm, you know i wonder if uh, you know if i got that face too which is probably why i got such a great face for podcasting so uh, anyway <laughs> We love you anyway. <laughs> there you go. With my big potato head. Um, all right. So there was that. Let's see. What else did I want to point out about this movie? Uh, for me, a couple of things that I particularly appreciated just as trivia. Number one, they were heading to Valparaiso at the end. Valparaiso is a wonderful city in Chile. One of the most interesting, beautiful. Uh, to your point earlier, TJ, I call it a beautiful place. But it's a rundown place, right? It's a it's not a elegant, classy city in Chile, but it's colorful and it's on you know, it all rises up from the bay, kind of like Naples does into this horseshoe into the hills. It's really just wonderful. And one of my favorite places, primarily because of its elegant grunginess, I think, right? Uh, the other piece for me, too, that I really, really loved uh, was that so much of it took place in the Galapagos Islands, and they really did film there, which I'm surprised they were able to because there's a lot to protect the Galapagos. This was the first film, first non-documentary film ever to film actually oh, really? on the Galapagos Islands. Okay, right. So for any science buffs out there, you'll recognize the Galapagos Islands as the uh, the, the the particular relevance to the work of Charles Darwin, who was a um, early in life, a ship's mate who on the uh, HMS Beagle, um, who was asked to go on this, I think it was around the world uh, ship expedition, because the captain wanted somebody educated to talk to, 
right, uh, on the ship. And so Darwin got hired as a young man to be on this ship, to be the ship's naturalist. And um, it was his visits to the Galapagos that inspired his later understanding of, you know, creating the uh, theory of evolution by uh, random mutation and natural selection. So it was interesting to me to see this character of Dr. Maturin kind of being an almost Darwin uh, character who had, you know, fate been a little bit different, may have been the one who came up with the theory of evolution uh, prior to Darwin. So. Do we see Stephen as a five-ish character, you think? I do. I do. Um, I, I don't know if it was a pure sort of five, but that's the way I would have leaned. Um, it's interesting that in the books, he's actually a British spy, and uh, this is his way of gathering information. I don't know. How about you guys? Did you see him as a, a five-ish character? Yeah, I'd say the same thing. You know, he's he hungers for the possibility of going onto the Galapagos Islands and being the first to record previously undocumented species of birds and of reptiles and such. That That's catnip to a five. Mm -hmm. I can be there to discover new knowledge and take the whole body of knowledge forward. Oh, yes. Gimme, gimme. Yeah. yeah. And I think also the scene where he has to operate on himself there's a sense of uh, it takes probably a little bit of a detachment to <laughs> to, to stick a you know uh, 19th century instrument into your body, and also um, yeah, but but at the same time there's like a curiosity about him. He wants to be the one who does it. He knows he's got the expertise. The other guy who was going to do it is clearly not cut out for this, right? And so right. Uh, and he does it successfully. Yes. Yeah. And there is a certain through intellectual a arrogance we see. Yeah. Through the mirror. Right. So he's doing everything backwards. Right. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and there is a certain uh, intellectual arrogance we can often see in fives. Um, you know, that's, that's not uncommon. It was also interesting to me that in the other movie they made, Russell Crowe was playing the five and the Paul Bettany character was probably more of a seven, as I recall. It's been a while since I've seen that, but uh, Oh, and of course, he was also fictional. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's another element. Um, let's see what else. Been, any other thoughts about Master and Commander? There's a number of scenes that display Jack's mentorship of younger officers. And that's something that I think is a very eight quality. The healthy eight wants others to be strong and can provide a good guiding hand. So, you know, there's a scene where he shows younger officers how to use a sextant to navigate. There's the scene where he shows just a throwaway moment where he's got young officers turning in a circle and saying, may the Lord and saints preserve us. That must have been a nautical tradition at the time. It's a great scene when he's supervising cannon practice and they time it and discover that, you know, it's just not fast enough for what they're going to need. And he gives this great rousing speech. Do you want to see the French in Piccadilly? And everybody yells up, no. Do you want to kneel before Napoleon is your king? No. Do you want your children to sing the Marseillaise? No. Then do it better. And then they do. And then when they do it well, he says, an extra ration of grog for all of you. And everybody yells, rah! <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of that, of like the eight, eights can be great teachers. You know, in the right circumstance, when they're teaching something they're passionate about to people who really want to learn and are doing their damnedest to learn it. You mentioned the scene earlier, but when he gives the book to William, the boy who's had his arm amputated, he gets visibly emotional. And there is this great thing about eights where... Uh, there's like this mother bear sort of energy where if they, if you're against them, they will claw your eyeballs out until there's nothing left of you. But if you're under their protection, like you said earlier, TJ, uh, you know, a mother who will fight a lion for her children. And that feels like a very eight-ish energy. And then I like the line at the end when um, 
they're on the Galapagos and he's talking to Stephen and Stephen says that he'll name, he's going to find some sort of, you know, creature to name after him. And he says, name a shrub after me, something prickly and hard to eradicate. <laughs> that, that, that points to one other thing that I think is worth noting here is Aubrey's seriousness without taking himself seriously. Right. So there's an ability to laugh at oneself, to recognize one's own pomposity and one's own, you know, the, 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 how difficult one can be. But, you know, being able to joke about it while still being deadly serious about things that seem to matter. Right. And I thought that was portrayed really well here that I can be a serious person without taking myself seriously. I am who I am. This is just how it is. And if you don't like it, get off my boat, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'll drop you in Valparaiso. All right. Um, okay, guys. Uh, so, uh, TJ Daw, I'm sure you've got a list of movies, uh, other movies starring Type 8. Uh, we, <laughs> we probably don't want to go through the whole list, uh, but tell us some other movies where people can find Enneagram Type 8. Well, instead of specific movies, I'm just going to sketch out some genres where you'll find a lot of eights. So gangster movies, mafia culture in general has a lot of eights and the movies about it are no exception. Crime dramas, anything with cops and robbers, there's going to be a lot of eights. Action movies, particularly martial arts movies. I believe that Bruce Lee was an eight. And I think in, especially in action movies and martial arts movies, a lot of the villains are eights. Eights can make great scenery chewing villains, especially when the climax of the movie is the confrontation between the hero and the villain. War movies, military culture is very eight. Battles, very much eight. Not everybody in them is going to be an eight, but a lot of them will be and just have that kind of eight intensity. Westerns, genre that seems to have gone the way of the dodo by and large, but still, if you're into Westerns from the period of Hollywood when there were a lot, you'll find plenty of eights. Finally, sports movies. Mm. I think sports movies, are, and Rudy in particular is a movie where Famously, a lot of men allow themselves to cry. And it's there you have the power and you have the sensitivity in one place. And just to reiterate what I was saying before, this list of genres, it's not going to have too many women in it. So here's hoping we can find more movies, not just we as a group of podcasters, but we as a culture have more movies that allow and celebrate eight when it shows up in a woman. Yeah, agreed. Um I just want to touch on the sports movies thing that you said because that's a great point. So I as we all know, I love the movie Rocky and every time I hear the music I start to cry like a little baby. And um and I remember <laughs> this sound like I'm um place dropping here, but being in Geneva one time with a friend from Spain, I was meeting her brother who was also an eight. And even though we had never met before, he spoke mostly Spanish, I spoke mostly English, both eights, and we just instantly resonated with each other. And then we started um, bonding over our love of the movie Rocky, and particularly the end of it, you know, and we'd been drinking a little bit, you know, as we eights tend to do, and um, we're like crying about talking about the movie Rocky. Now, you hit me with a hammer, I'm not going to cry, okay, but play a few bars of going to fly now and I'm a blubbering baby. Right. So, um, well, cause hammers <laughs> bounce off of uh, eight inch thick armor, but Rocky gets to that soft underbelly. You've that's, got that... that's right. And Rocky's not an eight. <laughs> that That's exactly right. Exactly right. But there's just something about, 
somebody overcoming adversity that taps into the heart of the eight. So uh, I think that's what's going on there. All right. Well, guys, this was fun. Uh, it's all downhill from here, okay, because now we have to talk about the other types. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I know that we have some great movies to talk about for the rest of this season. So, guys, thank you again. As always, this was a lot of fun for me, and I'm looking forward to having just as much fun when we talk about the other types. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. In the meantime, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and join us on social media.